Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Amen. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Yeah, so for those of you who have never been a part of Mission Christmas, it's incredible. Again, that's December 17th. It's going to be an amazing, amazing uh, event and uh, outreach. And excited to have Courtney being the one leading the charge. Um, yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of get into this and uh, see where we, how far we can get into it. And I trust the Lord will uh, do amazing things as he has. Uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we have really been unpacking there's a lot of ways you can put it, but in one way to see it is the new covenant, which is the spirit of God and the necessity for us to be ministers of this new covenant. Uh, Jesus's blood uh, that was spilt and his body that was broken. Um, that's not the fullness of the new covenant. That's actually what opens the door to the new covenant, which is the spirit. That's why Paul says, I minister now, not by the letter, which is the old covenant, but by the spirit, which is the new covenant. So when we stop only with a message of forgiveness of sins, as important, as vital as that is, we must, you can't bypass that. It's the foundation for all things. But if you stop there, you actually miss where his body was meant to lead us, which is to be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. It's God's presence coming to live inside a man. With Adam's curse, Adam's curse when he sinned was that he had to live life before God without life from God. It's impossible to live before God without life from God. That's what religion does. Religion puts out a bunch of rules, but the, the, the whole key is to have the life of God living through you that's animating everything that Christ has done for you. So if Christ is new creation for you, Holy Spirit is new creation through you, right? If Christ is righteousness for you positionally, Holy Spirit is righteousness through you. You take out the Holy Spirit, you take out the batteries, if you will. Have you ever opened, uh, how many of you have little kids? That's one of the most frustrating things. You get them a brand new car. They're so excited and it says batteries not included. <laughs> you have this beautiful new thing, but there's no power. It's the same thing. We need the Holy Spirit. And so we're really growing and learning how to be ministers of the Holy Spirit, which let's just be clear. Yeah, they're, they're, it's moral behavior and, th and whatnot, but it is by and large in the scriptures to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit, to minister with healing, deliverance, the spiritual gifts. This is the essential to being ministers of the new covenant of the Holy Spirit. And what we've been doing is we've just, I, I feel like we've just been recapturing this. There, there's teachings and theological camps that really want to say that these things have ceased. They no longer uh, exist and uh, they're not meant to be walked in. And, and I hope, I know, I know it's been happening. Um, we're really coming into alignment with the truth of God's word. There's scriptures that have been used to um, essentially weaponized to create hesitancy in God's people to step into the fullness of walking in the Holy Spirit. Creates fear to the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes scriptures are even used to even create a disdain and a scorn towards the works of the Holy Spirit. And I feel we're just setting, setting, uh, um, setting the stage, just coming back to the simplicity of what's in the gospel. So what I want to do this morning is I, I want to again contend uh, for the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit and how necessary it is. And one of the ways I would frame this is, is the message that Jesus bore, the message in ministry that he bore, is it meant to be replicated by his followers today. In other words, the message that Jesus brought, as we'll see clearly today, was the message of the kingdom of God that was actually expressed predominantly through setting people free, whether it was healing or deliverance. That's actually what Jesus spent most of his time doing. <laughs> 
counter to what we think, believe, what we wanted to say, if we read a simple, straightforward reading of the scriptures, this is what Jesus, and I'll show you statistics of what he did. He spent most of his time proclaiming God's reign is here on the earth, and then he was liberating broken people from sin, from the reign of Satan. And so the question is, is what Jesus did, if what he bore, what he went after, is that for us today? And I believe one of the, another simple way that we can get in overwhelmingly yes is to understand how people taught and instructed in the ancient world. In other words, here's the simple word, discipleship. <laughs> if we properly understand discipleship and how it works, we will come to a conclusion to see that when you are a disciple of Jesus, when he is your rabbi, when he is your master, the expectation is that in every single way we are to emulate the ministry of Jesus Christ. All right? So that's what we're going to look at, and, uh, and we're, we're going to pray uh, however the Lord leads at the end, and I think it's going to be powerful. So why don't you open uh, up with me to Luke chapter 6, and let's see, I'll, uh, I'll just bring it down to one verse right now, to verse 40. Thank you, Lord. All right, Luke chapter 6. Again, we're looking at the need for us to continue to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. The giftings are for today. And one of the ways we're going to understand this is through discipleship and what it meant when Jesus called people to follow him and he's calling us today. Now, we'll see again where, where time leads us. There's a number of scriptures I want to share and highlight that I think will really bring us deep into this. I want to use Luke 6 verse 40 just to set a stage and a context for us. Uh, and it's a really powerful verse that's just been seared in my heart over the last few weeks. So this is Jesus actually speaking. Chapter 6 of Luke verse 40. And this is what he says. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be just like his teacher. Okay, so a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, but everyone, everyone, when he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, this may sound strange to us because we were not rooted, obviously, in, in the context of what Jesus was, uh, when he was sharing this. Uh, for us, we have different models of teaching, but in the ancient world, uh, especially in first century world, the primary place for instruction was a rabbi-disciple model. So Jesus is speaking about something that was very, very familiar in the day, and I'm going to uh, break that open more in a moment. But what I want you to see is that Jesus is saying is that if you attach yourself to a rabbi, there is a goal in mind when you say, I follow this man. Now, this is not just for Christianity. This is for this is how you learn. The Greeks, all of them, this is how they learned. They would have the Plato's and, and these men. They were essentially teachers in their own respect, rabbis in their own respect. They wouldn't use that word, but that's the same idea. And they would have individuals who would come and would be attached to them and say, that is my rabbi, that is my teacher. And I am their pupil or their student or their disciple. And Jesus is saying is that once you attach yourself to someone and say, that's rabbi, then the goal is that that rabbi's not just teachings, but life will be replicated in your very own life to the point that you will be just like the teacher. And he says, this is for everyone, which means if we collectively in this house say we follow Jesus, there is nobody on the outside of what we're sharing right now. There's no tears. 
There's no, well, you're a disciple, but I'm just kind of staying over here right now. And this is good news. Jesus' desire is that all of us are being brought into this. He has a plan of bringing us into deep maturity. And the gold standard of maturity is not what I look like, thank God, not what anyone in this church looks like. Jesus Christ himself is the gold standard. You say, how is that possible? Well, we don't have the full time to go in, but we've shared this before. But Jesus really lived as a man. Do you know that he really lived as a man? (laughs) Philippians 2 says he actually self-emptied him. So that means not that he stopped being God, but he really lived as a man. That's our hope for salvation, Hebrews 2. It's our only hope that we had to have someone who was like us in every way to stand in our place to represent us. But here's what that means, is that Jesus, as a man, still being God, but but somehow, there's mysteries in this, uh, does does not... pull from his perfections, pull from his deity, pull from his all-knowing, all-presence, all-power. He, he, he willfully accepts the restrictions of humanity and is dependent on the Holy Spirit, obedient to the Father, to show us what it looks like to be a son and a daughter on the earth. He gives us the standard, which means if that Jesus really lived as a man by the Spirit, dependent on the Father, his life is not just impressive, it's an invitation there's every part of his life is an invitation to say, this is what it looks like to be a true child of God. And the same charismatic spirit that rests on Jesus, what happens at Pentecost? Put on the church <laughs> so that we can walk and do the things that Jesus has called us to do. This does not devalue Christ. This actually exalts him to the gold standard of the church. That means everything around the church now is being patterned after this man Christ. So the goal here, according to Jesus' own words, is that each and every one of us would be like the teacher. Notice it says, I want, to, I want you to catch that wording. It says, we'll be like his teacher. That means exactly. This does not mean you'll take a bit, I'll take a piece, or we'll keep his teachings, but we won't walk in the deeds that he did. No, 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 guys, this is very, very important. You cannot do that. And this is why we're going to see why we must walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because when we see what Jesus did, we cannot, according to biblical standards of the ancient world, you cannot say, I'll take this, but not this. Once you do that, you wage war against the essence of discipleship in the ancient world. No one would come and follow a man and say, I'll follow you in your teachings, but I will not follow you in your lifestyle. Then you are not a disciple of Christ. (laughs) So this is really important. Oh, man. I I would really ask, what are we... And, and I'm not saying here, but just in general, are we making disciples of Jesus? If we're cutting out the deeds that Jesus did, particularly moving the power of God to bring the kingdom of God, are we truly, by biblical standards, making disciples of Christ? Well, the answer would be no. If we're not actually training people up to walk as Jesus walked, then we're not making disciples of Jesus. We may be making disciples of a man, a pastor, a teacher, a denomination, but to make disciples of Christ, the idea is that his life will be replicated, reproduced in our life. He came to dispense his life and his followers that his life would be reproduced through us in every single way. In fact, it starts by saying a disciple is not above his teacher. That's another way of saying a disciple never deviates from his teacher. The expectation is whatever you see Jesus do, that's what we have been called to do. So here, here, here's, I mean, it's clear. He's saying who, now to, to the, in the context of Jesus, if we claim to follow Christ, his expectation is that we're gonna do the same exact mission, do the same things, say the same things that he did. There's, uh, there's no taking pieces out. But here's what's happened, is that traditional Protestant theology has, has restricted how far we can imitate Jesus Christ. Yeah. 
This is really, really important. Uh, we've circled this mountain many times over the last few weeks. Should we do it again? That's what I'm wrestling with. <laughs> All right, let me just say this, because this is important. It really is. Some of you, hopefully this is starting to be repetitive at this point, because that means it's getting in there. But the Reformation is beautiful, holy. That's the 1500s, if you don't know, men like Martin Luther. At the time, there was what is known as just the Catholic Church. And, uh, and I'm not demonizing the, the Catholic Church, but at that point, there were admittedly bad abuses happening in the church. Primarily what was happening is that the Pope was claiming to have authority to still continue and speak Scripture. He was adding to the Scriptures. That's the main thing. And the way that he authenticated this doctrine is through so-called miracles and spiritual gifts. So what the Reformers did is they said, we need to create theology that will ultimately cut out and say the gifts and the power of God and the offices of apostle no longer exist. If we can do that, then we can cut out the Pope of what he's standing on in his doctrine. So the problem is, it's like this. The reformers found themselves in a ditch, which, thank God, they got us out of. But rather than getting on the road, which is the truth, they went so far to the other side that they found themselves in another ditch called cessationism. Rather than going to the scriptures to actually find what it looks like, we just said, we're going to cancel out that God moves in power anymore. And now, it's no wonder that today, with every mainline denomination finding its theological roots from the Reformation, there is such widespread indifference and even hostility towards the work of the Holy Spirit. Where does that come from? It all comes from really the Reformation. That's where it was catapulted to this unprecedented level of normalization. So I honor the Reformers. I honor what they did. But guys, I think it's also time to admit that there are some things that really went off. And thank God, over the last hundred years, there's been a real restoration of the power of the Holy Spirit. But in the context of discipleship, here's what's happened. Is that since the Reformation... The imitation of Christ has been accepted, but only up until a certain part. There, there was a limitation place. It says, okay, you can imitate Christ, but only in the realm of piety, ethics, moral behavior. So for the last few hundred years, really the essence of discipleship is you can imitate Jesus as long as it's dealing with purity and ethics. That's really important of, of discipleship. That's, that's a key aspect. I'm not devaluing that. However, what they did is they cut out the ability to imitate Christ in the power and charismatic giftings of the Holy Spirit. And once you do that, you do violence to the New Testament evidence. And again, you completely distort what it means to be a disciple of Christ. You remove the power of bringing the gospel of the kingdom from being a disciple of Jesus, and you cut out the heart of what it means to really be a follower of Christ. You guys follow me? So what we're looking to see is a restoration of the fullness. I want piety, I want ethics, I want moral behavior, but I also want to follow him in what he did when he brought the gospel of the kingdom with healing, deliverance, and moving in the power of the spiritual gifts. So I'm going to get into a few scriptures. I want us to really get this. We have to understand the context of how they discipled in Jesus' day, to understand how he discipled. Again, how do they learn and instruct this is really, really important for us. And again, I mentioned they didn't do it like in this type of setting, really. It was actually in a rabbi-disciple model. And for the Jews especially, the way that you learn, the knowledge that was passed between generation to generation in this rabbi-teacher model, it was predicated on a deep knowledge between the teacher and his disciple-pupil-follower. This knowledge was not just giving principles that were void of relationship. It was a knowledge that came through interaction with one's life. So much so that actually if you read in scriptures, you'll see this. In Judaism, the relationship between a rabbi and his followers was so, was so close, they often equated to a father-son. 
So for example, when Elisha is looking to see Elijah get called up, if you notice, you know what he says? He says, my father, my father. He wasn't speaking to God. He's speaking about Elijah. Elijah was like a father to him. He was like his child. It's the same reason why Paul, when Paul disciples, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, you've had many guides, teachers in, in Christ, but you have not had many fathers. I was a father to you. I was a father to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, Timothy is my spiritual son. He says, when he comes to you, he will remind you of my ways. Now that actually teaches a lot about discipleship right there. Paul was so confident in his father-to-son relationship with Timothy, he says, I just need to send Timothy to you and you'll be reminded of my ways. Timothy has so caught my way of life. To see Timothy is to see me, Paul says. And this is how it is with Jesus as well. Jesus himself in John 14 tells his disciples right before he leaves, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. Why does he say that? He says, because you're my children. And I've been a father to you in the sense of I've discipled you in this way. Does that make sense? So there's two primary reasons why there was this close knowledge and relationship between disciple and rabbi. Number one is the teachings were primarily oral. So they didn't just write things down and say, here, go memorize this. This is really important for us to know how we get discipled by Jesus and with one another. He didn't just say, take this. But the main thing is that teachings were not only oral, they were demonstrated so that a way of life was learned. In other words, if you say, this is my rabbi, my master, my follower, you were meant to imitate their way of life. Hence, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me is not some mystical, metaphorical expression. <laughs> like, I wonder what he meant when he said, follow me. You know what he meant? Follow me. Literally, you are going to come with me, and you're going to listen to what I say, and you're going to watch what I do. And then when I leave, you're going to do it yourself. To be a disciple of Christ was not merely to regurgitate his teachings. Yes? You actually watched his lifestyle, and then you would replicate that lifestyle. Now, how do we disciple often today? Because Luke 640 says that once we are fully trained, we'll be mature disciples, right? How do we often disciple today, though? It's purely predicated on giving knowledge to one another. There are three main pillars of discipleship that, that I think it really makes it easy. There's being with God, there's knowing about God, and then there's doing the works of God, okay? This is why prayer room is really essential. Being with God is so important because if, let me, let me back up. Most of Western Christianity, what do you think is the heart of discipleship in the West today? Knowing. Most of discipleship, when we say we're making disciples, what we really mean is knowledge. We have an abundance of knowledge today. Everything that we do is typically hinder, uh, hinging around Bible studies, classes, and things of this nature. I love those things. But if all we're doing is having Bible studies and getting knowledge after knowledge after knowledge after knowledge, but it's not with being, that becomes very pharisaical. But if it's not with doing, that becomes deeply deceptive and thinking that we're in a place of maturity that we're not. But here's what happens is that today, and this takes place, you put a Bible study, the room is filled. You say, we're going to go out and go do what Jesus called us to do. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, hold on, that's not really for me. Our schedule gets busy, right? But listen, if we're going to be disciples of Christ, we need to be with him. We need to know about him. But then we need to go and do the things that he's called us to do majority of discipleship now has been reduced to the classroom. I love the classroom. That's important. But there's a place where we actually have to go and do what Christ has asked us to do. Now it's, it's really uh, it's a matter of, of just giving 
information that's rooted in theology and ethics. And there's little emphasis placed on practically modeling and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. But this is how Jesus discipled, right? So we're doing this model that actually, I was reading a whole thing. Paul was waging war against the modelship of discipleship for the Greeks. The Greeks love knowledge. Paul says that's not the way that we do it. We don't just pass knowledge to knowledge to knowledge. Paul was talking about modeling the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the way that we do it, right? So we need, to, we need to be with God. We need to know about God, but we need to do the works of God. And this is the way that Jesus discipled. I want to read a quote from you from Josephus. You guys ever hear of Josephus? He's a first century historian, Jewish historian. We've preserved his writings. When, when speaking about word and deed, listen to what he says. This is amazing. First century, we've, we've preserved this. He's speaking about young Jews being discipled, not necessarily by Jesus, but just this is the way it worked in Judaism. He said, the law orders that they shall be taught to read and shall learn both the laws and the deeds of their forefathers. They are to learn the laws, meaning the teachings and the deeds. And he goes on to say, in order that they may imitate the latter, meaning imitate the deeds and being grounded in the former, which is the word. So according to, the, to Josephus, the way that they discipled in Judaism is they would hear the word of, the, of their master and be grounded in that, but then they'd watch the deeds and do the deeds. They would imitate the deeds. Uh, there's a man by the name of Ben Sira, who's 2nd century BC. It's incredible. We have his writings as well. He was a, a Jewish scribe. He had many followers, many, many pupils, if you will. Listen to what he's, how he describes discipleship in the days of, really, Jesus. He says, the goal of a rabbi is to train his student to such an extent that when the teacher dies, it is as though he is not dead, for he leaves behind him one like himself. This is the context that Jesus discipled in, that when Jesus died and ascended, it is as if he has not left this earth. Why? For he has left many like himself. Now, the question, though, is what did Jesus do? It's really simple. Regardless of what we think or what denominational upbringings we have, what did Jesus come to do? What was his message? What was his ministry? How did he train his disciples? And then from that, we can understand what is expected of us today. Yes? All right, so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Matthew 4. And specifically verse 23. How are we doing on time? All right. So what I want to do is we'll see how far we get in this, but if, if we can get all the way, it's all right if we don't. But there's three questions I want us to walk through to make this simple. Understanding the context now, a disciple in Jesus' day was to emulate the entirety of his master or rabbi's life. So that makes it really simple. If this is how Jesus was discipling, we need to ask ourselves, what did he come to do? What was his ministry? What was his message? What did he spend most of his time doing? Number two, what did he tell his disciples to do? What did the disciples actually spend their time doing when they were engaging in ministry? And then number three, just to even emphasize the point more if we get there is, is there any difference for the readers of the New Testament? In other words, the disciples of disciples. Has somehow the message changed for us? And again, I think we'll see absolutely not. <laughs> All right, so everyone there in Matthew chapter 4? I'm going to read verse 23 in uh, one sec. I just want you to hear this because there's so many scriptures I can highlight. But Jesus, when the New Testament writers tried to summarize and condense Jesus' life into a sentence or two, 
They, they, every single time, this is how they summarize it, in some form or fashion, they use language to say that Jesus came to oppose the reign of the devil. 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared, he was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Acts 10, 38, when Peter summarizes the entire ministry of Jesus in Cornelius' house, the best way he could summarize it in a sentence or two is that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power and went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. This is solo scriptura. This is how the disciples, when they say, you want to know what Jesus did? Here is the summary statement. What are the works of the devil? Demonization, sickness, disturbance of nature itself, sin. Jesus came to deal with these things. We're going to learn what we are supposed to do then, right? <laughs> It's really simple. This is what Jesus actually came to do. <laughs> I really feel the Lord on that. <laughs> um, okay, so let's look at Matthew 23. Here's the context of how he was destroying the rule of Satan. <laughs> Man, so many things are going in my heart right now. All right, let's read it. This is Jesus' primary message. Verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee. Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. When Jesus comes out of his baptism and out of the wilderness, he comes out with one dominant message that everything come under. What did he preach? He preached the gospel of the kingdom, which means he was preaching the good news of God's rule and reign that was coming through his life onto the earth in order to make all things new. And by establishing his kingdom on the earth, he was driving out the domain of Satan himself, who had received dominion over this earth in part because of the sin by Adam. Adam forfeited the authority, but Jesus, as the second Adam, would do what Adam failed to do. He would not forfeit his authority in the wilderness like Adam did in the garden, but he would overcome and Jesus is making a way now for us to do the same exact thing. Here's what's amazing is right before he says this, you know what he did? He called the disciples who were fishing. <laughs> so you got to see the context of these guys. I wonder, are they still like just thinking about fish right now? <laughs> they literally called off the boats and Jesus is like, follow me. They come with this man and this man burning with fire coming out of the wilderness is going through synagogues and cities saying the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of God's kingdom is here. And then he's healing and delivering people. And I wonder, are these disciples just like, what in the world is going on right now? They're just watching it. But Jesus, as a good rabbi, is not just proclaiming a message. He's preparing his disciples to be able to do the very same thing. So this is the message that he's, he's proclaiming, the gospel of the kingdom to destroy the works of the enemy. Now, did Jesus do other things besides healing and exorcisms? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is not the fullness of it. However, what we're, where we are today in, in our culture, sadly, is that we've cut these things out. And I would actually say not only are they significant, you can make a case by Scripture, they're actually more important than anything else. They're not subordinate to anything. If the amount of time a writer gives to a certain topic is any indication of how important it is, then the gospel writers want us to know that Jesus bringing the gospel of the kingdom in power and miraculous signs and wonders is very, very significant. Who are we being discipled to? Jesus. Who is our life and ministry meant to uh, reproduce after? Jesus. What did Jesus spend the majority of his time doing? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom with healing signs and wonders, destroying the works of the devil. What should our lives look like? <laughs> Think about this. The gospel of Matthew... 44% of the Gospel of Matthew, that's almost half of Matthew is dedicated to the kingdom language of Jesus moving in signs, wonders, and power, 
healings, deliverance. Four, almost half of Matthew is dedicated to this. The Gospel of Mark, 65%. 65% of the Gospel of Mark is showing this is what Jesus actually spent his time doing. Luke is, uh, I believe it's 29%. He was slacking. <laughs> no, and John was 30%. That's still almost a third. How in the world have we gotten to a place today where a third, a third, almost three quarters and half of what's recorded in the Gospels of Jesus' life has been cut out and we're saying it's no longer existence? Then we're not being disciples of Christ. We're now picking and choosing bits and pieces of his life. <laughs> So here's what's happened is that certain theological camps, and I, honestly, and I think there's a measure of where there's honest desires here, but they, what's happened is, and this, again, warrants a lot more conversation, but essentially they said you can emulate the piety and moral behavior of Jesus, which, by the way, I've said this before, as if that is somehow natural, like we can just do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like we don't need the Holy Spirit to love like Jesus, to wash the feet of the one who's going to betray us and put us on a cross. Come on, let's not pretend like any aspect of Jesus' life is just, oh, okay, we can do that now because that's a lot easier. Every aspect of his life requires supernatural. So why are, we, why are we cutting out now the power? But here's what happened is the reason why predominantly is because they say it's almost like his humanity, there was an allusion to it. I know he looked like a man, but really he wasn't. And when he did the miracles, he really was doing it as God to prove that he is God. And he is God. But what we just read is his miracles were actually to bring the gospel of the kingdom, to destroy the works of the devil. That's his primary reason for performing these things. And that's why it's able to be passed on to our generation. His miracles of healing deliverance were full-on assaults to Satan's domain. Where he's actually, guys, we've said this before, do the demonized still need to be set free? Yes. Do, do, the, do the broken suddenly be healed? And everyone? Yes. Like Jesus came to destroy his works and the debilitating effects on people's lives. Has that all of a sudden just ended? To, to remove the deeds and power of being a disciple of Jesus, you take that out and what happens is we domesticate the church. We tame the church. We take out the power of the church. And now we're training up people rather than repulsing the works of Satan, we're telling them to bear with them. Oh, you see, you see someone demonized, don't deliver, just medicate them. You, you see someone afflicted, don't try to step in what Jesus did and, and actually bring healing into their life, just comfort them in that affliction. Now, we're going to comfort people in a sense that we're going to love them, but we're going to do what Jesus said to do. But if, if you remove this, we give room for Satan to have his way. These are the works of Satan. These, God is not the author of sickness. He's not the author of brokenness in families. This is, not, this is not where God is. This is not God's plan. God's heart is restoration, making all things new. And Jesus came to do this. And he's given us the same commission as the church. Yes, we love, we love in practical ways. We love by bringing food and these things. That's a real way to love. But I say this often. Coming out of Teen Challenge, we would have uh, food banks and whatnot. And it's one thing to feed people, but... If we don't deal with the root of what's made them at 60 years old, still being dependent on someone to give them food like that, that's, we haven't loved them to the fullest extent. Like real love will not only give them food, but it will deal with the emotional wounds or whatever is going on in their mind, praying for Jesus to heal them. So Jesus, this is what he came to do. All right, time's going. <laughs> Come with me to Luke. Luke, oh yeah, you're right. 
Just go to Luke now. Luke 9. We're going to read it from beginning to end. Luke chapter 9. So it's really clear. I just want you to follow me. I know this is repetitive, but I want you to follow me. In Jesus' day and how Jesus discipled, a disciple is to emulate every part of his master's life, his rabbi's life. We know what Jesus now predominantly came to do. There's other things, but this is a major aspect. So then what did he tell his disciples to do? Did he say, this is what I did, but you're going to do something different? Not at all. Look at Luke 9. These are commissions that are so important to actually understand the Great Commission. But look at verse 1. Luke 9, verse 1. It says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Verse 2, And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God to heal. Okay, wow, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, healing, delivering, and should we be shocked that as a good rabbi, he not only bore this message, but then now he's inviting 12 others to replicate it themselves. It's exactly what he's doing here. Look at, look at Luke 10. Go one chapter later. Luke 10, verse 9. This is not where he sends out the 12. This is the 72. Here's, here's, he's going to do it again. He's going to send out the 72. And in uh, verse 9 of Luke 10, he says, Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So once again, Jesus, not for just for the 12, but for the 72, just as I proclaim this message, now you're going out to proclaim it. Heal the sick, deliver as you go out and re uh, replicate the same exact ministry that I did. These commissions, these commissions, guys, teach us what normal Christianity looks like. This is actually meant to be normal Christianity. We are in real need of a reformation. This is why we're going to, we're in need of a real reformation of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. Stay with me. Mark 3. Let's, I want to share two other verses on this point. Mark 3, verse 14. You see it again. Mark 3, verse 14. Now, this is amazing, Mark 3, verse 14, because Jesus makes it even clearer. He gives the explicit reason for why he's called 12 people, 12 men, to follow him, right? Mark 3, verse 14. And he, meaning Christ, appointed 12. This is where he first calls the 12, the disciples or whom are also named apostles, so that, that means here's the reason why he's called them, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Preach what? The kingdom of God and have authority to cast out demons. Isn't this amazing? It literally says, you want to know why he called 12? He called 12 to himself like any rabbi would call. Actually, rabbis, you had to actually come to the rabbi. Jesus is, drips with grace because he's coming to men today. Do you know that? Do you know that you couldn't approach a rabbi? The rabbi had to come. Uh, I mean, um, uh, you would have to come to the rabbi. A rabbi wouldn't dare come and say, would you follow me? And the higher a rabbi got, the more and more it was selective and restricted to follow him. Do you know the God of the universe is coming to men, broken men, saying, would you follow me? Would you partake in this mission of renewing the earth? This is incredible. The grace of God to come to us calling and saying, I want you to follow me. But I'm a tax collector. I'm broken. I was sexual bonded, all this stuff. Yeah, you come with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wash you. I'm going to cleanse you. And then I'm going to send you out. You're, you're the right person. You're the right person. Everyone in this room. He's asking you to follow him to be a part of this, not just be on the fringes of it. So he says, so that they might be with him. 
He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This is, isn't it interesting that from being with him, what would they do? They would go and preach and uh, uh, they would see deliverance and healing. This is this discipleship pattern. Why? Because they would walk with him, watch him, and they say, now you're going to go do this. You, you notice the mission Jesus gave them. He did not say, go and start a church, <laughs> as important as the church is, but he didn't say, go find a worship leader. He didn't say, go find a place for people to assemble. He said, if you want to be my disciple, go and bring the gospel of the kingdom and pray for the broken and proclaim it. Guys, I want to tell you, we can do this any day of the week, but God has done something in my heart over the last few months from the summer for us with our evangelism. I, I can't even tell you the testimonies of what's happening going out every Wednesday. We are seeing miracles take place. We're seeing people like, we're getting words of knowledge going to the house. It's exactly as it said. They're inviting us in their home. We're praying over the sick, bedridden people. People have never had someone come to their house in who knows how long. People haven't left their house in years and years and years. And we're just proclaiming the light of God, leading people to the Lord. And then parents show up as we're ministering right in the driveway. And then they say, what's going on here? And then we start saying, Jesus wants your life. And then before you know it, they're surrendering their life to Jesus. This is every single Wednesday this is happening. <laughs> This is why we do this. This is why we have prayer and all these things. This is training disciples. This is real. We want to have Bible study. We want to be with the Lord. But we also need times to go out and do these things as well. All right, John 20. One more on this, on this point. John 20. And I'm going to just simplify it to verse 21. We're still on this point of what did Jesus tell his disciples to do? By the way, if you're questioning that, th this commission seems beyond what we could do. It absolutely is in our own strength. That's why we've been emphasizing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's why it's so central. Every gospel begins by introducing Jesus, bringing this, coming to baptize. Why? It's not just a nice add on it. It's a goosebumps. It's essential to the empowerment to be able to do what Jesus called you to do. So John 20, verse 21. Jesus comes to, uh, after he resurrects, he comes into a room of his disciples who are uh, filled with fear. They thought they were going to be persecuted. Now he's resurrected. You want to talk about more fear? <laughs> uh, a dead man's going to walk through the walls. And, uh, but listen to what he says. Very important in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Now listen carefully. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He says, as the Father has sent me. What is as? As in the English language doesn't capture the weight of this. As means, and for us, close but not exact. Similar but there's differences. That's not. Kathos is the Greek word here. It means identical in the same degree and manner. Jesus is saying exactly as the Father has sent me, I am sending you because you're my disciples. So this is very important. I'm not trying to devalue the work of the cross by any means. I just want to put in its proper context that forgiveness of sins is opening the door to a new way of life. The cross is not simply about what you've been brought out of. It's about what you've been brought into. We are not just in now a middle ground of forgiven, but just waiting for somehow to be taken out of here. You've now been transferred into the kingdom of his son to bring his kingdom on the earth. But most in traditional Protestant theology would say the sole purpose for Jesus coming is for the forgiveness of sins. That's it. And then we hang on here until heaven one day. Here's the problem with that. If that's the case, how could Jesus say, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you? If the only reason Jesus came was to die for the forgiveness of sins, how can we be sent to do that? 
We cannot die for anyone's sins, which Jesus, by his own admission, is saying, my purpose is bigger. It's not less than, but it's much more than just being made right. That's the foundation. But now, as a second Adam, I am bringing the kingdom of God on the earth. Where Adam failed, the Garden of Eden is being restored on the earth, and you're being called to do the same. This is the mission that he sends us in. You can't miss it. He's saying, as the Father has sent me, he's literally boiling down why he was sent. It's a big deal. And he's saying we get to go out in the same way. So the summary is what did he do? Jesus went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, primarily in power. And then he tells us to do it. Why is it so unclear today then? Well, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> but it's easier. I'll just say this. As we've said before, I think it's easier. I know it's in my own life that when I don't see things that I can't especially do in my own strength, it's really easy just to come up with reasons and theology to say it's no longer for today than humble myself and cry out for God to do it again. It's really easy to say, well, we'll just, we'll just come up with a, a, a theology, but this is bad theology if we're saying God's not doing this anymore. Do, do you know that, do you know, talk about what disciples did? The book of Acts, 30% of the book of Acts is all centered on miracle stories with bringing the gospel of the kingdom. 30%. That, that's more than all the sermons and speeches combined, which is about 23%. Now, I love preaching the word of God. We need that. But all I'm saying is if all we say is the only way that we bring the kingdom is just preaching the word of God and have no, no desire to at least contend for these things, again, we're, we're missing the way Jesus did it and the early church actually uh, were discipled. All right, last thing. I know we're, uh, we're hitting it, but are you guys good? Can you give me like two more minutes? Matthew 28. If you guys could turn there. Matthew 28. I actually had a number of texts to share in this, but I'm just going to leave it here. There's some other ones that are really, really good. But here's, here, I'll, I'll make it even harder for us. Because some will say, okay, uh, Jesus, it's clear what he did. It's clear what he did with his 12 uh, but now it's changed. So do we have any context that for generations after this that we are meant to flow in these things? And I could take you to a number of scriptures that show generation within scriptures being discipled in the charismatic power. But I'm going to take you to two, the well-known text of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. So that's verse 18 I'm going to be at. And here's even clearer where we're grafted into this. Matthew 28, verse 18. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, here it is, all that I've commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So how long is this great commission meant to exist for? To the end of the age. So now the question is, what is incorporated in this great commission? And when you understand that Jesus says that I want you, as you go and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, I want you to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. What are the primary things that actually Jesus taught his disciples? How to bring the gospel of the kingdom in power. <laughs> But somehow today, what we've done is we've said all that I've commanded is a matter of ethics only. And we've taken out the power aspect. How can that be? 
Over and over in the scriptures, we see that the way Jesus trained his disciples was this way. We want the purity. We want the ethics. That's so important. But we cannot remove this aspect of it as well. In fact, it says to the end of the age, what's really interesting is if you go to Matthew 24, Jesus says this. He says when it comes to the signs of the end of the age, he says one of these signs will be that the gospel of the kingdom will go out to the nations. He says, and then as a sign to the nations, and then the end will come. You can't miss the connection here that the great commission is the bringing the gospel of the kingdom to the nations. And what does it look like to bring that? It's everything that we have shared. It's meant to continue for today. Listen, guys, I want to just be clear. The great commission, the reason why I share those other commissions really quickly, and we didn't read them in detail, but they're not erased by the great commission. They're actually fulfilled and enriched by the great commission. The reason why it's the great commission is because there are other ones that are actually being folded into the great commission. That, that's very important. So you want to say, what are we actually called to do? Read the commissions of Luke 9 and Luke 10, and you'll actually see. And if there's something that has, uh, Jesus will let us know if something's changed. For example, in Luke 9, it says only go to Jews. And you say, well, then we can't take any of that. That's not true, because in the Great Commission, it says now go to the nations. Jesus has actually taken principles and now enriched it. Do you know that in Acts, this is amazing, in Acts, Peter and in, uh, no, I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas, in Acts 13, they get to a town of unbelief, and they're not welcomed. And you know what they do? They shake the dust off their feet. Where did they get that idea from? That's part of the commissions of Luke 9 and Luke 10, which means the pre-crucified commissions are still binding on the church. They're still following those things in the book of Acts. What else is in there? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, praying for the sick, seeing the demonized be set free. <laughs> All these things exist for us today, Yes. Come on, can you come up on the keys? I like putting my wife on the spot. She's just learning the keys, but. Come on, why don't you guys stand with me? Thank you, Jesus. As I said, for, uh, it's just unnecessary for, for today, but it's amazing. Oftentimes where Paul speaks about discipling and calling the church to imitate him. The context is in the charismatic power. Um, you'll see it a lot in, in uh, different, different epistles. And so there's even more um, confirmation that from generation to generation, as Paul was discipled by the ministry of Christ, even though he didn't walk with them, this is what he saw. Then Paul said, now imitate me as I imitated Christ, right? So you see it passed down from one generation to the next. So the question is, if that no longer exists, where in church history did all of a sudden the, the mode of discipleship shift. It just hasn't, guys. It hasn't. And I want you to know that in every single way, uh, by the Holy Spirit, we've been empowered and commissioned to do these things. I'm finding out more and more, I've probably said this a bunch of times, that um, the book of Acts, in, in one respect, is still being written. Not in an authoritative way, but meaning God's still working this way. The more we step out, the more we're going to see it. And this is for every single person that we would be called into this. So I just want to pray over us as a body. And then um, for those of you who'd like to, to stay, we're going to open up the altar. And I've, I do feel like God wants to mark people with this, the, the, this imitation of Christ in every way. Maybe if you struggle with that, the Lord wants to mark you um, in power. I believe there's fresh and fillings and baptism of the Holy Spirit this morning uh, to be touched that way as well. So let's pray as a, as a house. And then uh, if you'd like further prayer, you can come on up. And if not, we, we bless you and we'll see you throughout the week. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We honor you, King Jesus. We confess that you are rabbi. You are many things to us, but you are rabbi. You are teacher. You are master. And we are your disciples. We're your students. We are your pupils. We thank you for the privilege, Lord, to follow you. We thank you that in grace, when we were still far off warring against you, you came to us. And yes, I thank you that you've forgiven us and washed us, but I thank you that it was unto the giving of the Spirit that we would go and disciple the nations. So Lord, I'm asking that in this house that we would not just be trained up in knowledge of you, but that we would be trained in being with you and trained in doing the works that you've called us to do. Lord, would you give us vision? Would you burn in our hearts of what it would look like for an entire community that's walking in your footsteps? And I just ask this morning, God, that those that come forward to receive prayer, I pray that there would be a unique marking to be imitators of your life. As, as I, you said, dot, 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 so you will. Lord, may it be said today, as I, so we will, Lord. As you, so we will, Lord. In every single way, God. Lord, may we not leave one aspect out of your life. I thank you that you are the firstborn of a new creation. I thank you, God, that you're a prototype of what it means to look like as a, as a son and a daughter. I thank you that all things are being conformed to your image. God, in this house, we will not cut out pieces of your image, Lord. But in every single way, Lord, we're going to lay our lives down. I pray, God, those that need to be filled freshly for the first time, Lord, would you baptize them in the Holy Spirit this morning, God? Would you immerse them and flood them with your presence and power this morning, God, that they would be fully equipped, fully equipped to go? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.